continuing on in the Gospel according to John. And this morning we're going to look at chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. John 20, 19 through actually 31. Make a little adjustment there. Beginning in verse 19. And remember, this is Easter evening. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank You for John's written testimony here. Thank You that these signs are recorded so that we would believe without doubting that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the very Son of God, so that we could experience life. Father, may Your Spirit come this morning and empower Your Word so that we would hear from You as You communicate to us through Your Word. Father, speak to us. Father, I would ask boldly that doubt would be dispersed. That we would be built up in our faith. That our faith would be strengthened. Father, do this through Your Word and Your Spirit in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. In the 1940s, Billy Graham and Charles Templeton served side by side as evangelists with an organization known as Youth for Christ. But believe it or not, it was Charles Templeton who proved to be the more versatile of the two evangelists. And he quickly rose to prominence, and he was even more successful in influence than Billy Graham. In fact, in 1946, Templeton was listed among those best used by God 
by the National Association of Evangelists. Newspapers and magazines carried reports of his meetings, informing readers that he was winning 150 converts a night. In Evansville, Indiana, the total attendance over the two-week campaign was 91,000 out of a population of 128,000. Church attendance rose by 17%. However, despite his influence and success and popularity within Charles Templeton Hearts, uh, within his heart rather, doubts were forming. And as he read more and more about the Christian faith, he was beginning to doubt more and more essentials of the Christian faith. He shared his doubts with his good friend Billy Graham. And as a result, uh, the doubts of Charles Templeton overflowed onto Billy Graham so that he also began to experience doubts. Billy Graham writes in his autobiography, I had no doubts concerning the deity of Jesus Christ or the validity of the gospel, but was the Bible completely true? I pondered the attitude of Christ toward the Scriptures. He loved those sacred writings and quoted from them constantly. Never once did he intimate that they were wrong. In fact, he verified some of the stories in the Old Testament that were the hardest to believe, such as those concerning Noah and Jonah. With the psalmist, he delighted in the law of the Lord, the Scriptures. As that night wore on, my heart became heavily burdened. Could I trust the Bible? With the Los Angeles campaign galloping toward me, I had to have an answer. If I could not trust the Bible, I could not go on. I would have to leave pulpit evangelism. I was only 30 years of age. It was not too late to become a dairy farmer. So Charles Templeton had doubts over time. Billy Graham admits that he had doubts over time, that he wrestled with them. Now, we'll come back to these two men in a moment, but I want you to notice that they had doubts. Even the best of men have doubts. To have doubts, to have struggles with the faith is a given. At least it is if you're an intelligent person. If you're a thinking person from time to time, you're going to have questions. At least you're going to have questions if you don't have all the answers. And let me also state that this whole issue of having doubts applies across the board. In other words, it applies to believers. It also applies to skeptics. And it also applies to those who claim to be atheists. Now, since this is the case, let me say that believers should acknowledge and wrestle with their doubts. In other words, they should just be forthcoming. They should just admit, I have doubts. And they should face those doubts. Doubting Thomas, and that really is an unfortunate nickname, because all the disciples doubted before they saw the risen Lord. We have doubting Peter. We have doubting Matthew. We have doubting Judas. All the disciples were doubters. But unfortunately, Thomas wasn't there on that first night, so his doubts gained uh, preeminence and are highlighted. But doubting Thomas is to be praised for at least one virtue, namely that of honesty. What does he say in verse 
25, after the other disciples say, we have seen the Lord. He says, quite honestly, just being straightforward, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He's just being honest. He's a doubter like the other disciples were, and he's being honest. He's not being hypocritical. He's not being a phony. He's just admitting, you know what? I don't believe it. And unless I see the evidence, I will never believe it. And he is to be praised by that. And we should also say right up front, and I hope this is a comfort to many of you, that even godly men go through times of doubts. Now, if you know anything about Thomas, you probably know that he's known as Doubting Thomas. But he is not just a doubter. Back in John 11, Jesus is getting ready to go visit Lazarus, who is sick and about to die. And this is what we read in John 11:7. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? You see the difficulty? In Judea, they were planning on stoning stoning Jesus. Now Jesus is saying, let us go back to Judea. And the disciples are saying, "Uh, Lord, can we reconsider this? (laughs) I don't know if this is really the best idea because they were intending on stoning you there. Look at verse 16. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Wow. That's impressive. Thomas is saying, if our Lord wants us to go back to Judea, and even if this means that we might lose our lives, let us go. Come on, guys. He's rallying the troops. Come on, guys. Let's go with him, even if we have to die. This is a man to be admired. In John 14, Jesus says to his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Then Jesus says, And you know the way to where I am going. After Jesus says this, if I can read between the lines a little bit, the disciples are saying, "Uh, actually, we, we don't know the way to where you're going because we don't know where you're going. Uh, Usually, it was Peter who was the bold one and would ask questions, but on this occasion, it was Thomas. Thomas speaks up and he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A great statement. And we have it because Thomas had the courage to ask this question. Now, why did Thomas have the courage to ask this question? Because he really wanted to know where Jesus was going. He loved Jesus. So he didn't care if he looked foolish. He was going to ask the question because he loved Christ. So what's my point in this? Thomas really is a great disciple. He's a godly disciple. He's a devoted disciple. It just so happens that he is struggling on this occasion, as all the disciples were, 
But again, at least he is being honest about his struggles. He's not being a phony. He's not being a hypocrite. Not pretending to have it all together when he really doesn't. Now, on the other hand, I also want to challenge skeptics and even ardent atheists to acknowledge and wrestle with their doubts. For example, skeptics who doubt the claim of Christians who say, as we just read in John 14:6, there is only one way to the Father. Skeptics who doubt that claim by Christians because they believe all roads lead to Rome, all, Christ, or all religions contain some grain of truth, or all religious paths lead to God. Those skeptics who claim that need to realize that what they believe, they believe by faith. Can anybody prove empirically that all religions lead to heaven? So when skeptics say, I doubt what you Christians say about Jesus Christ being the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through Him. I doubt your exclusive claims. Skeptics should be honest and admit that they believe what they believe by faith. And many Christians over here look at what they believe and say, well, I doubt what you believe. And I think that many skeptics, if they're pressed about what they believe by faith, may admit that sometimes they have doubts about what they believe. (laughs) At a recent membership meeting, Uh, One of the ladies we were meeting with was talking to a friend and her friend said that she didn't believe the Christian faith. And this person said, well, are you sure about what you believe? In other words, perhaps you should have doubts about your doubts. I like what Tim Keller says in The Reason for God. He says, the only way to doubt Christianity rightly and fairly is to discern the alternative belief under each of your doubts and then to ask yourself what reasons you have for believing it. How do you know your belief is true? It would be inconsistent to require more justification for Christian belief than you do for your own. But that is frequently what happens. In fairness, you must doubt your doubts. And I think that's a good statement. Now, many of you know that atheists like Richard Dawkins, uh, Sam Harris, uh, the late Christopher Hitchens, and many others will assume that they can just opt out of this whole nonsense about belief and faith because they live their life according to science, according to the facts, according to solid reasoning. They don't hold to any of this fairy tale, religious, belief in God nonsense. They're reasonable people. Well, can science answer all their questions? R.C. Sproul mentioned that on one occasion. He had a conversation with Carl Sagan, 
Many of you are familiar with Carl Sagan, his famous video, The Cosmos. Perhaps some of you saw that it begins billions and billions and billions of years ago. And those of you who were here a couple of years ago remember John Morris saying that's how you have to say it. Billions and billions. Thank you for helping me, Lydia. Billions and billions and billions of years ago, the uh, universe exploded into being, known as the Big Bang Theory. But Sproul had a question for Mr. Sagan. He said, well, what happened just prior, before the quote-unquote Big Bang explosion? And Carl Sagan said, we don't have to go there. (laughs) And R.C. Sproul said, you're kidding me. He said, you are stopping your scientific inquiry at the moment prior to the greatest point in human history? And of course, Carl Sagan has to stop his inquiry because science stops right there. He doesn't know what happened before that. He believes there were some kind of gases coming together. Something had to explode because nothing cannot explode into something. So if there was nothing, then what would we have today? Nothing. So there has to be some kind of assumption that something exploded. What exploded? And Mr. Sagan, where did those gases come from? And if he's honest, he has to admit, I don't know. And we could also say, where are you there for the Big Bang explosion? And if he's honest, he has to say, no. And we could say, okay, that's fine. Thanks for your honesty. Now, can you admit that what you believe, you believe by faith? Just as much as I, as a Christian, believe what I believe about the Christian religion by faith. Can we at least be honest here? Now, I know what scientists will say, and I heard one recently on a talk show. He was saying, well, science hasn't given us all the answers yet. But given enough time, we will have the answers to these questions. And my response, if I would have been there, was, wow, you have incredible faith in science. I have faith in God, in God's Word. You have faith in science. But can we at least, again, both be honest that we believe what we believe by faith and not just hard evidence? Has science proven the existence of a soul or disproved the existence of a soul? Uh, How about life after death? Does science have any answers for that? How about the existence of a heaven or a hell? How about is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment? Has science proved or disproved any of those beliefs? And it hasn't. And I suspect that when some of these skeptics and atheists are alone in the dark with their own thoughts, I suspect that occasionally they have doubts about what they believe. And they have doubts about their doubts concerning Christianity. They do not have all the quote-unquote facts. They may want to sing along with John Lennon, imagine there's no heaven, imagine there's no hell, 
But be honest. You're just imagining that. You're not proving that. So again, I want to say that this whole issue of doubts and questions applies across the board. Nobody is immune. So let's just be honest. I think that's the first step that we should have. Now, looking at our passage, verse 24 says, Now, Tom is one of the twelve called the twin. Your translation might say Didymus. That's what it means. Twin was not with them when Jesus came. Now, why was Thomas not there? Where was Thomas? We don't know where Thomas was. We just know that he wasn't there. But regardless, uh, this sets the stage for him to express his doubts and for Jesus to deal with his doubts. So I'm glad he wasn't there so that he could speak for many of us and express his doubts and so that Jesus could come to him and deal with those doubts and give us some lessons. And in verse 25, as we saw, the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And he said, I don't believe it. Unless I see it for myself, I will never believe. Now, let me say right here that I think in the church, we need to have a merciful environment for doubters. We need to have a merciful environment for doubters. Because what's the alternative? The alternative is to have an environment where people say, well, I don't know if I really believe that. I I have some questions. The alternative is to say, no questions. How can you not have stronger faith? And if you have that kind of environment where if people should dare to raise questions and they're shut down, what will they do? They won't raise those doubts. They won't ask those questions. They will suffer in silence. Or they will go to some liberal who will be more than happy to listen to their doubts and give them answers. Answers that are different from the answers that we would give. So this is very important. This is why I'm saying right up front, we all have doubts. Even the godliest of men have doubts so that we can have a merciful, gracious environment where people feel free to express their doubts, to ask their questions. We, we all have them. They started this young. God has always existed. And then, and then our kids will say, well, how can that be? I don't understand, Dad. That doesn't make sense to me. How can that be? How can God exist forever? Well, I don't understand. How can there be one God, yet this one God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? I don't understand, Dad. How can that be? We should have an environment where our kids can ask those questions and we give the best answer we can, which is, I really don't know, son. That's a good question. I just believe it because it's in the Bible. But to be honest with you, I don't know how God can always exist. best thing I can tell you is He's God, and that's what it means to be God, and He has to always exist. I don't know. If you come up with a better answer later, let, let me know. But you want to have an environment where they're free to ask questions. That, that is healthy. I would even say that is essential to spiritual growth. We want to have that kind of environment. And if you want a specific verse, there's a great verse in Jude 22. And if you're saying, why didn't you give me the chapter? Because there's not a chapter. There's only one chapter in Jude. So you just say Jude 22. But if it helps, Jude chapter 1, verse 22. <laughs> It simply says, have mercy on those who doubt. 
have mercy on those who doubt in the body of Christ. And there, the context specifically has to do with Christians. Have mercy on them. 26, we read, Eight days later, so this is Sunday, a week later, and if, if we can just hypothesize for a moment, what do you think Thomas was doing throughout that week after the other disciples all told them? Remember, there was ten of them. Judas had hung himself by this time and Thomas wasn't present. But what do you think Thomas was doing when the other ten disciples basically ganged up on him and said, We've seen the Lord! And, and they were excited about what they were saying. They were absolutely convinced about what they were saying. What do you think Thomas was doing throughout that week? Now, we're not told, but I believe, and I'll be surprised if I get to heaven and he didn't, but I believe he was praying. Wouldn't you be praying? I believe he was just praying like crazy. And, you, and it's not hard to imagine what he would pray, right? Father, these other ten guys, I've known them for over three years now. They're men of integrity. These other ten guys, that they have seen the Lord. I'm having great difficulty accepting this. How can I accept this? They're saying it's true. And he is just wrestling, I believe, with the Lord for seven days. Just praying and praying and praying. And you know what would happen every time he came to... And saw the disciples, he would see their joy and they would talk to one. Isn't this wonderful? Jesus has risen from the dead. And Thomas would kind of be off to the side thinking, boy, I wish I could join in the party, but I'm really having difficulty here. So you can understand why that would be very hard for Thomas. But I believe he was pouring out his heart to God. And my challenge would be to Christians who doubt and to skeptics who doubt and even atheists who doubt. My challenge would be would, would you at least cry out to God? At least cry out to God. I, I challenge you. I really do. Cry out to God. Even if you have to say, God, I don't even know if you really exist. But if you do, would you make yourself known to me? These, these other people over here, they, they think you believe. They really believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They really believe He's the Savior of the world. Just be honest. They have something that I want. They have a joy. They have a confidence that I want. Whatever your situation is, I would challenge you. Could you at least just be honest before God? Say, show me. I want to know the truth. I think many skeptics really aren't running to the truth. I think they're running away from the truth. I think they really suspect underneath that God really does exist that He really does require me to live according to the Ten Commandments, and that they actually want to live however they want. And therefore, if God doesn't exist, then they can live however they want. But if skeptics really are concerned for the truth, then just pray to God. Do you have anything to lose? What, what would any of us have, have to lose? Pray. Who, who knows what God may do? But we're told in 26 that eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them on this occasion. Although the doors were locked once again, Jesus came and stood among them. How did Jesus do this? We're not, we're not told exactly. Did he somehow just walk through the wall and the door? Somehow did he just appear and here I am? We don't know. Uh, but what we do know is the first thing he said is, Peace be with you. 
probably because the first thing that happened when he appeared was they were startled. So he says, peace be with you. And then notice on this occasion, um, it seems that he goes directly to Thomas. Perhaps, I'm not going to be dogmatic here, perhaps this is an answer to Thomas's prayer. Um, and if Thomas wasn't praying, I would also assume that the other disciples were praying as well. <laughs> Lord, help Thomas! Help our doubting brother. Please help him. Please make yourself known to him. Then he said, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand, put out your hand and place it in my side. We don't know if Thomas actually reached out his hand and physically touched Jesus. It doesn't tell us that he did. I I suspect that he didn't have to when he saw Jesus. He believed. And Jesus said to him, Do not disbelieve, but believe. That's important. As I've said, we need to be honest about our doubts. We need to have a merciful environment where we can express our doubts, where we can ask questions. But I also want to say that while honesty is a virtue, doubting is not. It's something that we need to work through. If we're in a state of doubting, we need to realize, I need to get past this doubting. Because when we're in a state of doubting, it's as though we're in a state of flux. And James talks about the man who doubts, and he says he's of two minds. To be a doubter is to be a double-minded man. It's to be tossed back and forth like the waves of the sea. And you don't want to be a person who's constantly tossed back and forth. So be honest about the fact that you're being tossed back and forth, but realize you don't want to live your whole life like that. Eventually, you want to come down on one side or the other, which means you want to come down on the side of, I've worked through it and now I can believe, or I've worked through it and I haven't come to that conclusion, I now disbelieve. And this is why it's also to be important with those who are doubting, because as they work through that doubt, they're going to come down on one side or the other. And we don't want them to come down on the side of disbelieving. We want them to come down on the side of believing, which means God may use us to help them. Charles Templeton, as I said, was a very influential evangelist, helped start Youth for Christ, was pastoring a church in Canada. The church was flourishing, but he was reading Karl Barth. He was reading other liberals, neo-Orthodox men. And this was causing him to doubt the deity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the inspiration, authority, inerrancy of Scripture. And he told Billy Graham about these doubts. And he decided that he was going to resign from his pastorate and he was going to go to liberal Princeton in order to get answers to his questions. Does anybody want to guess? What the outcome was, I think you know. You know the tragedy. He had all these great doubts. So he went to a liberal institution and it basically said, if I can summarize, and I wasn't there, but I don't think I'm far off the track. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they basically said, well, of course you should have doubts about the inerrancy of Scripture because it was just written by men. Well, of course you should doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That defies logic. It defies history. 
And he went to Princeton. And he had doubts added to the doubts he already had, and they multiplied, and they resulted in him turning away from the faith and embracing atheism. And shortly before his death, he wrote a book titled, Farewell to God. And doesn't that really summarize it? Farewell to God. In that book, he wrote of a conversation he had with Billy Graham. And he says, in the course of our conversation, I said, but Billy... It's simply not possible any longer to believe, for instance, the biblical account of creation. The world was not created over a period of days a few thousand years ago. It has evolved over millions of years. It's not a matter of speculation. It's a demonstrable fact. I don't accept that, Billy said. And there are reputable scholars who don't. And that was just one of the things that... Templeton was struggling with and he raised those struggles and he didn't get answers to his doubts. In fact, his doubts became entrenched so that he turned away from the faith, embraced Christianity, and shortly before he dies, he says, Farewell, God. Tragic. Tragic. I also said that Billy Graham went through a period of doubts as well. And this is what he writes in his autobiography. But that night, I believed with all my heart that the God who had saved my soul would never let me go. And this is picking up on that night when he was questioning the Word of God. He says, I got up and took a walk. The moon was out, the shadows were long, and the San Bernardino Mountains surrounding the retreat center. Dropping to my knees there in the woods, I opened the Bible at random on a tree stump in front of me. I could not read it in the shadowy moonlight, so I had no idea what the text lay before me was. Back at Florida Bible Institute, that kind of woodsy setting had given me a natural pulpit for proclamation. Now it was an altar where I could only stutter into prayer. The exact wording of my prayer is beyond recall, but it must have echoed my thoughts. Oh God, there are many things in this book I do not understand. There are many problems with it for which I do not have solutions. There are many seeming contradictions. There are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate with modern science. I can't answer some of the philosophical and psychological questions Chuck and others are raising. I was trying to be on the level with God, but somehow something remained unspoken. At last, the Holy Spirit freed me to say, Father, I am going to accept this as thy word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be your inspired word. Then I got up from my knees at Forest Home that August night, my eyes stung with tears. I sensed the presence and power of God as I had not sensed it in months. Not all my questions were answered, but a major bridge had been crossed. In my heart and mind, I knew a spiritual battle in my soul had been fought and won. Billy Graham just came before God, and he was honest. And God met him, and God did a work in his heart. God gave him the faith that he needed. And I would just say to all of us, let's go to God. Let's come to Him. He's a gracious and merciful God. We have no idea how He might show up. 
Look at how He showed up for Thomas. <laughs> you never know what God may, may do. Thomas needed reassurance and he got it. The Lord appeared to him. And what was his response? My Lord and my God. This is the climax of John's Gospel. John has written his Gospel specifically, and I think the context is important, specifically, he has written to Jews who are questioning the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but he has written to Jews so that they also would say concerning Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. What is Thomas saying concerning Jesus Christ? First of all, he's saying, my Lord. In the Old Testament, that means my sovereign, the ruler of all creation. He's acknowledging the fact that Jesus is Lord of all. And then he says, my God. He is acknowledging the deity of Jesus Christ, which is very important. John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? God. And now here Thomas is confessing that Jesus Christ is his God and his Lord. Now, out of curiosity, a while back, I, I do what I, I like to do sometimes, call up Jehovah's Witnesses <laughs> and say, could you tell me what this passage means right here? Because what is Tom confessing? He is confessing that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, which they reject. So what explanation do they give? They say, well, Thomas is saying something like, my Lord, my God. In other words, Thomas is guilty of blasphemy here, of violating the third commandment. You've got to be kidding me. Jesus Christ has resurrected from the dead. He's standing right in front of Thomas. Thomas is going to worship him and he's going to blaspheme. He's going to take the name of God in vain. Are you kidding me? That's your interpretation? Are you sure about that interpretation? I have doubts about that interpretation. Are you sure that's the interpretation? That's not the interpretation at all. Thomas is confessing that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity. And this is absolutely crucial because this is the confession of saving faith. What does Paul say in Romans 10.9? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead you will be saved. So here we have Thomas overcoming his doubt, his unbelief. We know that he has faith because of his confession of Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Now, what does Jesus say after this? Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen? That's good. It's good that he believes. But then Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus pronounces His benediction upon those who believe in the resurrection, those who confess that He is Lord and He is God, even though they haven't seen Him with their own eyes. So here is the crucial question. How will they come to know Jesus Christ? How will they overcome their doubts if Jesus doesn't appear bodily and stand before them and say, okay, reach out your hand. Put it right here in the holes in my hands. 
reach out your hand. Go ahead, touch my side. Where the how will they come to believe? John tells us. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may what believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John tells us, this is why I have written my gospel, so that you would believe. And I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. And I'm going to say it again because it is so important. How do you know what you know concerning Jesus Christ? Or actually, we could say anything in life. There are many different ways that you can know something. But when it comes to epistemology, just a big word for how do you know what you know, the most solid truth that we have is in God's Word. It's in God's Word. Which means if we have questions, if we have doubts, we really should do what Billy Graham did. We should open up our Bibles and pray. And I would even challenge skeptics, atheists, open up the Bible Read it and pray. Once again, you have nothing to lose. But we're told very clearly, these things were written so that we may believe. So if we want to grow in our faith, what we need to do is open up the Word of God. We need to open up our Bibles. If we want to hear from God, we need to open up our Bibles. Not look at the Bible and then close the Bible and then stand and wait for a voice. God speaks here. God builds up our faith here. Paul also says faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. Could not be any clearer. Which is why we have to be committed to God's Word. So that we can overcome our doubts. So that we can land on the side of faith and not believe. And why do we want to have faith? Why do we not believe? We want to be more than believers What's John's ultimate objective? That you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. This is what John is after. He wants us to experience life in all its fullness, which only faith in Jesus Christ can bring about. R.C. Sproul tells a story about his best friend from college and seminary who grew up deep in the jungles of Ethiopia. Uh, His friend's uh, parents were pioneer missionaries uh, deep in the jungles of Ethiopia and Africa, and they worked with animistic tribes. He said that his friend and his mom and his dad were the first white people that these tribes have ever seen. And he said that on one occasion, his friend showed him a picture of 30 members of a tribe. And within these tribe that represented 30 people in in this picture, his friend said, 18 of them are Christians, 12 of them are not Christians. And he said to R.C., he said, can you point out the Christians out of the non-Christians? And he said, they're all mixed together. And they're all dressed alike in their tribal garb. And R.C. said he looked at the picture and he immediately said, 
Here's a Christian. Here's a Christian. Here's a Christian. Here's a Christian. This is a Christian. This is a Christian. Here's a Christian. Here's a Christian. This is a Christian. And this is a Christian. And he said within a very short period of time, he picked out the 18 Christians and his friend said, you're exactly right. And he asked, asked himself, he said, how was I able to do that? And he said, actually, it was very easy because animistic people who hold to an animistic religion believe that rocks, trees, crocodiles um, have living spirits within them. Um, animistic comes from the word animated, which means to come alive. If someone is animated, you know, they're, they're lively. Uh, they believe there's all kind of living spirits and all these things within creation. And they also believe that all these deep, ugly spirits need to be appeased. So they live their entire lives with a weight of darkness and oppression upon them. And R.C. said, I could tell just by looking at a snapshot, just by looking at a picture, I could see it in the countenance of their faces, that this cloud still hung over their heads. But I could see in the 18 in the picture that the cloud was taken away. The oppression was taken away. And I could see the difference in their very countenance. I could see that they had a life that the other people didn't have. And this is why Jesus Christ has come. So that we could have life in all its fullness. So that we could be set free from depression, fear, whatever plagues us. So that we can enjoy life in all its fullness. Beginning now. We don't wait for after death to experience eternal life. He who has the Son has life. Has eternal life right now, which will go on forever. This is why we have God's Word. So that doubts can be dispelled, so that we can believe in Christ and experience life in all its fullness. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word. The Word of life. Thank You that it is living and active. Thank You for its power. Thank You for the answers that it contains. And Father, thank You for Your Holy Spirit that gives illumination to Your Word. Father, I want to pray for the doubters here this morning, whatever category they would put themselves in. Father, I pray that You would come to them. I pray that You will answer their questions. I pray that the doubts will be replaced by belief. Father, I pray that we will be a church that experiences life in all its fullness. Father, help us to be a merciful church. Help us to be gracious with one another. Help us to be patient with one another. Which is really just another way of saying, help us to be like Jesus. Father, again, thank You for Your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, Amen.